Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Welcome back to another month at the AMR Studio. So this time around, we have an interview that Eva did with Dr. Rachel Irwin on the 15th of April. Uh, and she's from Lund University, Dr. Irwin. I really enjoyed this interview personally, and I hope you do just as much as I did. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to the AMR studio. We are really happy to have you with us here. Um, could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me here. It's uh, really fun. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm an anthropologist and I'm a researcher at Lund University in the Department of Arts and Cultural Sciences. And most of my research lies sort of between anthropology, medical anthropology, and public health and public health policy. Very nice. Thank you. What is your background? What did you, what did you went on to study when you went to university? Yeah, so I, uh, I studied anthropology. I studied medical anthropology as an undergraduate. And it's really because when I was 10 years old, I decided I wanted to be an anthropologist, uh, which, you know, you don't always hear. And I saw this film when I was 10 about a group of kids who uh, crossed the Kalahari Desert in southern Africa. And I thought, wow, it's so cool. You know, there's these different cultures. People live different lives than the suburban life that I was living. And I thought that was really interesting. So I wanted to learn more about, you know, different cultures, different societies, how people's daily lives were different than mine. But at the same time, um, I grew up in a family where a lot of people worked in the medical profession. So I was also interested in the medical side. And I didn't know, oh, do I want to be a doctor? Do I want to be an anthropologist? But um, at the time medical anthropology was still emerging as a, as a field. Uh, now I would say, I think a lot of anthropologists who are not medical anthropologists might feel that medical anthropology is dominating the field. They might feel a little bit pushed out. But at the time, um, it was still kind of a new emerging field. So I decided, okay, I want to be a medical anthropologist. And that's how it started. Those are very fun stories to know, like where where did it all started, and it could be a movie or it could be something else. I also knew super early on that I wanted to be a biologist and even a molecular biologist, which I didn't even know what molecular really meant. I just thought it sounded super cool, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I ended up also being a biologist. So those those are inspiring stories. So if you if you have kids and they they really say, oh, these things sound cool, I want to learn about that, then. I think all, all the better for, for encouraging them. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, in your recent publication on the end of 2020, you actually used your knowledge on medical anthropology and global health to look into the visual culture of antimicrobial resistance in particular. Why did you choose that topic to explore the visual culture of global health? Um, I think it's actually also a bit of a long story that, that ends at first in failure, but then it became a publication, so it wasn't such a failure. Uh, when I wrote my PhD thesis, uh, I was going into global health, and I was looking at WHO. So I was looking at global governance, asking the question, how does the WHO make policy? What actually happens in Geneva? There's two things from that. Of course, my questions in my PhD were about global health governance, global health diplomacy. But of course, you, know, you, you see data everywhere. Anyone who's working in global health or public health, it's, you're just constantly seeing data, you're seeing graphs. So I thought it was interesting, but it was kind of in the back of my mind. And then I was in part of a research group at the Pufendorf Institute at Lund University. And it's this institute where they bring together researchers across faculties and across disciplines. And the idea is you get one day a week for an academic year where you sit at the institute and you sort of have what I might think of as an academic jam session. So you're just supposed to jam, you know, play a little jazz, um, and, but think about a certain topic or a certain problem in a multidisciplinary way. So I think we had 11 researchers across three faculties, and we just talked about different aspects of antimicrobial resistance, what an antimicrobial future will look like. And so the failure comes here. Because I work on global health governance, I had this idea that I was going to write or do something really interesting about global health governance and, and AMR. And I am, I'm sure, actually, I'm not sure. I mean, I know there are people who are doing really interesting research on global health governance and AMR. And I struggled. I struggled so hard to think, what's like an interesting angle? What do I have to contribute to what people are already working on? 
And I, I came up with nothing. I, I just could not, for the life of me, come up with an interesting question around global health governance, diplomacy, and AMR. Or, or rather, I couldn't come up with a question that there wasn't already someone else doing really good research on that. So I, I felt like a failure for a while. But um, as part of this research group, looking at and reading different things about AMR, I, I realized I, I was really drawn to these metaphors. Um, and these metaphors that you see, especially in popular culture, but also in, in research around what an antimicrobial or post-antibiotic future might look like. So this, I, these metaphors around how we'll go back to the dark ages or modern medicine will stop working. A lot of this language around you know, apocalyptic language or catastrophic language. And so, yeah, I was really drawn to the idea of where do these metaphors come from? Why are we using them? And that's sort of where the, the publication how it started to take form. Very interesting. Have you worked before with the visual aspects of anything in, in particular? No, not at all. So it's also a new area for me. Um, but I think it, you know, there's, I guess I'd say like in the past 10 years, maybe five years, there's a lot of people within anthropology, but other related disciplines who've been looking more and more at global health data and the problems around data, how we use indicators. And then with an STS, you see a very, very long tradition of looking at medical images. But a lot of that's been images like, um, like ultrasound images or you know, what you see inside the body or in the microscope. And I, I think drawing upon what other researchers have already done on, on data, I thought, well, the next step is clearly visualization because this is what we're seeing it everywhere. And it's not only about data being turned into graphs, but it's also about how those graphs are then being discussed and, and what kind of visual language we're using to discuss them and, and also make decisions and make policy decisions and decisions in our daily lives. Um, and, and obviously you see that during COVID where Twitter is just full of graphs and heat maps and everyone you know, from, from you know, research experts to, down to you know, so-called laypersons are just sharing and debating all the data. Um, and so I think it's, yeah, I think, I think that, Looking at these data visualizations, it's really an uh, interesting area to consider. I guess your, your work in this study and the beginning of the pandemic kind of coincide in time? There was a synergy? Yeah, a, a little bit. I think I started looking at visualization and data sort of as a side project, even predating the antimicrobial work. So I think it's one of those things where it was interesting to me, but it wasn't until the pandemic that it became interesting to other people. Yeah, this is what this is where I was going. That it was a good timing to actually be studying this in particular. Yeah, absolutely. I really like that you focus your study, as you were saying, not only into exploring what kind of ways people have used the AMR data to make graphs and to communicate about AMR, but also the implications of how we present this data actually guides people on having an idea about the problem and drawing narratives in their minds about how the present looks like and how the future might look like. Since we are working in an area where what we're trying to avoid is that something becomes worse in the future, in a sense. So I really, really enjoy this angle that you were giving it. It's not just about how do we get the data that it is available today and presented to communicate the problem today, but also how that would actually go into people's minds and their imagination and how we see the world would also kind of converge together with the, with the presented data. What are your thoughts regarding the way that visualizations are used to explain AMR narratives? Yeah, so I think I can talk a little bit about what I looked at in my study um, to give the listeners sort of an idea. But I think it's also funny that we're talking about visualization and we're on a podcast, right? So I'm just talking about things that people should search on the internet to look at. Um, but I was looking at mainly popular culture explanations of antimicrobial resistance. And so these would th be things like graphs, animations, graphics. And I looked at different genres, like uh, different TED Talks. In Sweden, we have a satire program called Svenska Nyheter, or Swedish News, which is similar to American-style news satire programs. And they did a segment on AMR that I looked at. I looked at various YouTube videos, different documentaries, um, and also morning talk shows, the kind where they have a doctor on to discuss a problem. And in, in general, and, and I don't want to, I don't really want to critique anyone because I think it's great that, you know, there's public awareness of AMR. So I think that there's certainly like this role for when we talk about the public communication of science, having clear messaging, 
I think it's Claire Chandler, but I'm not sure. But I think Claire Chandler wrote about this in an article where she or whoever wrote it um, was saying that with climate change, part of the problem that we have today is that there wasn't always clear messaging in the beginning. Like 15 years ago, it was like, oh, there's all these different factors. And I think that, you know, within other aspects of other areas of health and science, I think climate change has been this warning to us that we have to have clear messaging, that we can't really have, um, you know, space for as much nuance. So that said, I don't, I don't want to critique anyone or any like producers of a certain show or YouTube channel, because I think it's really great that we're talking about AMR. But that said, in a lot of this popular culture representation, you see a very specific narrative arc where they said, oh, okay, we have this problem. And if we don't do anything, 10 million people will die by 2050. And the problem is caused by the irrational use of antibiotics. So we need to stop asking our doctors for antibiotics. And we also need to create more market incentives for antibiotics. And, and that's the basic story that you see across many of these different genres. And to scare people into action, there's a lot of this discussion of, oh, modern medicine won't be possible in the future when we can't use antibiotics, or we'll go back to the dark ages of medicine. And so I think you see the certain narrative, these certain explanations that are just reproduced over and over. And I think that can also prevent us from having more novel ideas about how to deal with antimicrobial resistance. And of course, I think, I think that we need new antibiotics, but I think that there's other areas of science, hygiene, uh, the way that we live our lives that can also, um, that also mean that we don't have to be as terrified as some of the um, visualizations or some of the representations make us feel. I remember on the seminar when you were here with us at UAC that uh, we had a little bit of a discussion about how it seems like the only future that we see if things don't get better, is a future that brings us back to the past. But you were arguing that in reality, this might not be the case because in no shape or form, we can actually be in the past because other things around have also changed. So we might be in a future where there's no antibiotics, but that actually it will be together with other changes that have happened throughout the times. Can you elaborate a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I mean, I don't... You know, I can't predict the future. I don't see an actual future in which there are no antibiotics at all. But let's just pretend that there aren't any for the sake of argument. Well, we have germ theory. So, you know, 120 years ago or so, germ theory was in dispute. So we didn't even really uh, quite understand germs, viruses, bacteria, etc. So I think that's great. We already have more scientific understanding. We can still wash our hands. We still have soap. And for many people, not everywhere, but for many people, our lives are just different. You know, 120 years ago, I, if I lived 120 years ago, I'd probably be working on a farm and there'd be certain risks that I would have in the course of my daily life. Uh, or maybe I would work in a factory and it would be the beginning of the industrial revolution and it would be very, very dangerous working conditions. Of course, there are still many places in the world today where people are working in factories that have unsafe conditions. The people who are working in farming, also some of whom have unsafe conditions. So I don't mean to, um, to gloss over that. But for many of us, life is a little bit safer in some ways. But it's also more dangerous. We have other types of risk factors. And I think I use this example, you know, in Sweden, a lot of people do like to go to, for example, Thailand or other really warm and sunny places. And so you're, you can potentially be bringing back um, resistant bacteria with you. And that wasn't something that Swedes were bringing home 120 years ago because no one was traveling to Thailand. Again, I'm not, I'm not singling out Thailand per se. I'm just saying that it's a, it's a place where Swedes like to travel. But there's other locations where you can also pick up resistant bacteria. Yeah, it's a, as I understand it, it's just even whatever the future might look like, the context around that future would be different than in the past. So we cannot just say that we will go back to how the past looked like. And I think that's a, it's a bright outlook on it because it might look like something we have never even imagined before. I think our imagination, as well as you're saying, that the way that AMR is presented and the narratives that are shown constricts our creativity a bit into looking for new solutions or, or how, how to go about it. I think 
our past experiences and the past that has been lived also constrains our vision of how the future might look like. So we should be a little bit hopeful that you know the future will really look different than the past, even if we have more risk factors of other problems that will come. So I think that's something that people maybe should have more in mind <laughs> every day <laughs> when we talk about this issue. Given the fact that we're talking this way of presenting AMR has drawbacks and I agree with you it does have drawbacks how do you think we could do better oh yeah I think that's a that's a great question right I think part of it is maybe not so much fear-based messaging and something that Brigitte Nerlich has written about uh, she wrote an article probably 15 years ago about some of these same metaphors and antimicrobial resistance and I think she asked this question like you know if we use fear-based messaging does that actually push us into action or just make us so anxious and that, that we can't even do anything because we're just frozen in our anxiety. And I think you can see some of that around you know, climate change as well. If you, if you terrify people too much, it kind of paralyzes you. I mean, fear plays a role as well. So I think there's a balance between fear-based messaging, but also thinking about what can be done. A lot of the messaging around AMR still is very much focused on the individual. So it's about you not asking for antibiotics or you not you know, misusing them. And I think that we need to be, I would like to see messaging that's a little bit more realistic about the role that large scale types of agriculture, what large companies are doing, what transnational companies are doing. But that said, you know, when you start saying, oh, well, you know, pollution, um, whether it's you know, different types of sewage, that kind of thing. So to go back to my first point, when we focus on the role of big transnational companies, that can also paralyze us because then you're like, oh, well, it's the transnational company's fault. Like, why should I recycle? Because it's really transnational company's fault that we have climate change. And I think that in addition to highlighting the wider structural problems, the way that, you know, the global economy is causing problems, I think that we also need to offer solutions of like what you can do in a democracy, or if you're not in a democracy, what you can also do. So to be more specific about how individuals can affect change at a global level. Yeah, I I agree, definitely agree with you that, um, that you know, like I, I struggle with that, not in AMR in particular, but other global issues that I feel there's a lot of pressure put into the individual, like we are hugely responsible for what's happening so we are also responsible to prevent it but there are much bigger players in the field and it feels like sometimes it's overlooked how much they could be actually affecting the the problem you know like and and therefore like much bigger efforts could be done from bigger players than you know every person at home yeah but i think i think it is like this idea that a couple of years ago my dog was sick and he got the dog version of amoxicillin, which is still amoxicillin, it's just in dog dosage. And it's not like it's not my dog's fault that AMR is a problem, right? Like it's not my fault. It's I think it's it's correct to assign blame to these bigger players, but it's also important for us as individuals to realize, okay, actually, you know, we can we can write letters to the newspaper, we can write to, you know, depending where you are, you can write to your parliamentarian or your congressperson. You can campaign, you can join groups. There are certain steps that you as an individual can take to try to promote or to try to affect change on a national, regional, global level. I mean, as you were mentioning before, I think, so the problem of AMR, as we talk here, is much more than just take or not take antibiotics, you know, all the issue of access to antibiotics in some places of the world and the availability of proper hygiene in other places. So I think a lot of the narratives really skew about like, okay, we should not be using antibiotics, but I don't see so much of like saying maybe bigger players should put money to get water to some places, to get hygiene to some places, because that will also be part of the of, of the whole of the AMR in the world, you know. And I think there is need for that aspect to be highlighted and to do more work on it and also to relate it to AMR because there is some talk about, you know, bringing water everywhere because sanitation is essential to, to human health. But if we also relate it to problems like AMR, then, you know, everything is connected. You are 
kind of quite new into the AMR field, so to speak, because you came from medical anthropology, you probably worked with other topics before. Did you have any particular challenges coming into the field when it comes to either understand some topics or talking to people that are already working on the field or focusing your research uh, in some way? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think there's so much really good research on AMR. And I, and I mean that both from you know, more of a biology perspective, but also from social science research. So I think, I think part of it was hard to, to think you know, how can I actually contribute? I think that was a, that was a really big question for me because there's always so much that's been written. And I think some really interesting work has been, well, you know, really interesting work has been done. So I think that was the biggest challenge I had. Mm -hmm. Do you think that anything is missing in your area of work? Yeah, I think, I I think it depends on how you, um, sort of define my area. I think if I look at things coming from like a humanities, social science perspective, I think, again, I think that we need more research on, on the visual. And this goes to data, but also how we're communicating science. So I think that's, again, there's already really interesting research that's on data and data challenges, why it's difficult to collect and communicate good data. But I think we need more focus on the visual. I think also, especially maybe from anthropology, not so much from other parts of the humanities, but Traditionally, there's been a bit of a snobbery around researching popular culture. This idea that popular culture somehow isn't real and that if you're going to do qualitative research, you need to go out and interview people and you need to be collecting data, but popular culture isn't somehow real. I think with, certainly within um, some of the so-called hard sciences and some of the, um, even with anthropology, I think that there can also be a certain snobbishness around more humanities-based uh, disciplines. And, and one example would be something like uh, literary studies. So in terms of looking at these different metaphors around the dark ages, dystopian futures, catastrophe, I used a lot of, uh, a lot of readings from literature studies, or from literature, looking at dystopian fiction and how that's been analyzed um, within the literary field. So what I'm getting at is that I think it's important to understand that, yeah, AMR is such a big topic that it's really useful to be talking to people from other disciplines, but also using analytical tools from disciplines that you really wouldn't have thought of before, like looking at dystopian fiction, and also sort of reaching a little bit further into what kind of material or data you're gathering. And for me, a lot of it was, you know, watching a lot of YouTube, maybe, maybe watching YouTube wasn't a you know, verifiable scientific method 10 years ago, but I think it is today. I think it was kind of funny that uh, in your article you mentioned Joe Scott answers with Joe because that's one of my favorite channels. I, I watch a lot of his videos and I especially watch with a lot of care the videos that he does on, you know, AMR. He did one on um, phage therapy and I want to see how all these people, because he has a lot of audience, are going to be exposed to this topic and in general I think he does a good work but as you were bringing up he is not really a scholar he's not really a researcher on the topic so the information that he gathers is also somehow exposed to the popular culture and all those narratives that are already embedded in it. I guess you spend a lot of hours researching for the material and the and the data and where is this actually being portrayed in popular culture. I am actually a little bit surprised that looking into popular culture is not really considered so academic because, you know, like the majority of the people out there are exposed to popular culture all the time and they are going to make their their ideas about the world through popular culture. So I only see that it's essential to understand how it works. I mean, I think, so I, sh- I should clarify, that there are, there are certain disciplines within the humanities and social science that focus on popular culture and have focused on popular culture for, for decades. But I think within other strands of social sciences and humanities, there's a certain snobbery thinking, oh, well, those scholars that study popular culture, they aren't real scholars somehow. And I think that that's, that's kind of what happens. But there, there are research streams that have been looking at popular culture systematically for, for decades. Um, but I think that we all need to um, just you know, break down our silos a little bit more and talk to other disciplines as much as we can. Yeah, that's that's the goal of, for example, our center, trying to get people to, to talk to each other. And, you know, for example, I know for a fact that we have a lot of scientists working in biology, in chemistry or in the clinics listening to the, this podcast. And then they're going to be hearing you coming from the humanities, talking about these issues and how 
how important they actually are and how we can actually have them in the back of our head when we work on our own topics as well. There is a funny question that we like to ask people that come to the podcast because they come from all these very different disciplines and different backgrounds. And it's, um, what do you find is most misunderstood about your field? And it could be when you talk to other um, researchers, colleagues that you have worked that come from other areas, or it could be general public, for example. I already know that there is a lot of misunderstanding about how historians and people in the social sciences and the humanities work. Do you have any particular examples of this? Yeah, I guess I, was, I, I know it's a funny question, but I think I have like really two serious answers. One is that, so for this paper, I basically watched YouTube for hours and hours. And it sounds like fun, right? Like sit in your pajamas, you know, with some coffee, watch YouTube. But when you start looking into metaphors around the Dark Ages or, you know, medieval metaphors, there's actually a lot of racism and anti-Semitism that you see. And it was really difficult to, like, you know, watch, like video after video where either it was explicitly racist or anti-Semitic or it was implicitly racist or anti-Semitic. And it was really like emotionally, it was much more emotionally challenging than I was expecting in part because I wasn't expecting to see that much racism and anti-Semitism. There was, it's not only in the videos, but also in like a lot of the YouTube comments. So I think there's that emotional aspect to research that that never makes it into the method section, right? Because you don't have that much space, so you cut your method section as much as you possibly can. But there is those, those emotional aspects of being exposed to really difficult stuff. And I know that although the tech giants have definitely been criticized for allowing a lot of things to stay on their, um, on their websites, and rightfully so, many of them have censors who actually do go through all this material. And I couldn't imagine what it would be like to, for your job to spend you know, eight hours a day at work going through material and taking it offline possibly. So I think it's a, a you know feel really a lot of empathy for people whose job it is to take down offensive material. So that's the that's the serious um answer to a, what should have been a fun question. But I think anthropology and ethnography is really misunderstood as a method. I think that's the other thing. Um and I think also qualitative research can be really misunderstood as well. Uh, some, sometimes there's this idea that qualitative research is about, you know, doing 20 interviews, transcribing them, coding them, and doing some sort of thematic analysis, and then writing a paper on it. And really good ethnographic research is much more um, all-encompassing. It's really about you know, being living in your field site or almost being consumed by your field site. And maybe in, in the past, we would have thought of an anthropologist going to live in a village somewhere and they're immersed in that village and they're living there and everything they do is surrounded by that village life. But most anthropologists study topics in a certain place today. So if my topic is AMR on the internet, then I'm really just all in, you know, it's, it's, I'm like living in that field site, I'm living in that online space. And so it's not simply about, you know, methods are not a step. It's not like, oh, you know, I, I did this interview, I recruited this person. It's more about living within your case study for a month, for two months as you're writing the article. So it's, it's not as superficial as I think sometimes people can think qualitative research can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's like a bit, like, just to make a, maybe a parallel that people will understand when an actor is preparing to play a role that they really leave their character because that's when it's going to make them understand how the character would react in different positions. So you, when you are looking at your data and you are embedding, understanding your data and your article, then you basically are Im immersed in it and you think about it all around, I guess. It's not just like you sit down and you look at this data and you make some connections and that's it. Yeah, I think that's a great, actually, it's a really good analogy. I mean, and, you know, of course, there's no wrong or right way to do qualitative research. A lot of people have different... Pro I sound like an actor now. Everyone has a different process. Everyone has, you know, how they get into character. Uh, but everyone does have a different process. I think, so maybe it's just me. If I do take this more of like a method acting approach to ethnography, where I just become obsessed with my topic for two months and I don't think of anything else. And then, then I need like a week or two to decompress and then I can move on to the next topic. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, coming back to the first topic that you mentioned about how emotionally taxing could be, you know, doing this work, I think it really deserves to be to be lifted and point out and people to understand that, you know, like when you are working on social sciences, 
you are also part of the social aspect that you are studying in a sense because we are all humans and we all live together and it's it's uh, hard to maybe extract yourself from what you are studying because you are also part of it whereas people that are working in the lab and they're working with um, you know animal models or bacteria you know it's you are actually outside of what you're studying whereas in social sciences we are all part of what a social scientist is studying so it could be really emotionally taxing realizing that you know the world maybe is not as good as you might felt before i don't know yeah i think so i mean i think i think that also you know even lab work can be emotionally taxing i think there's always like these examples right of someone who's studying a rare disease in the lab and then they come down with that disease or i i imagine that there's also emotionally taxing aspects of lab work. Um, it's, it's, I'm sure it's different, but I, maybe, I don't know, do you feel in your work, is there something that's emotionally taxing? I mean, when I was in doing research uh, during my PhD, um, it's emotionally taxing, but in different ways. You know, it's uh, doing the science in itself, at least if you are like I was, you know, like it wasn't emotionally taxing because, you know, I was excited about studying this and doing this experiment and stuff. But, you know, doing research you are working with other people, which is also a social aspect to it. So the emotionally taxing part would be to maybe realize that the field I'm working in or research is not as utopical as I have thought before, that there are also, you know, negative side to it. Realizing, is it for me or is it not for me? Maybe what I thought it would be is really not. So these are more the emotionally taxing aspects of of the research work I was doing rather than, you know, like realizing that what I'm studying is disappointing me just because you know how the world is you know if I'm studying my bacteria and then my bacteria don't really do what my hypothesis said it's like oh well this is what it is you know but uh, it's it's a little bit different I would say yeah uh yeah that's interesting all right uh we are almost closing up it was super interesting talking to you um but as a closing question topic theme do you have anything in particular you would like to tell our audience and also i'm really personally curious are you going to continue working with amr in any aspect or way yeah that's great um also i remember what i was going to say and i think it's back to this emotional aspect of research um and, and not with amr because it but with other areas, you know, when you start getting into the public sphere, um, like when you start writing, okay, how about this? If you go to an academic conference and you present something, or if you write an academic article, you get reviewer comments back and you can get really nasty review comments. You can get really nasty questions. It can be difficult. And that's one aspect of, you know, the emotional aspect of presenting your research. But when you start working on more political, topical things, then you start going out into like newspaper or talking within the popular, within, you know, popular culture. And it can be even more difficult, right? Because you can get like angry emails from people, from members of the public. And I think we've seen this a lot with COVID where like different researchers, you know, either get everything from an angry email to an actual death threat. So that's not something that I've experienced, fortunately. But I just want to say it's something. I think as researchers, we're expected to share our, our findings and our research with the, with the community, right? I mean, especially if those of us who are publicly funded. But it's as you start going out into that public sphere, you can like, get, you know, you can get pushback and you can get angry emails. And it's also something to, that I don't think we're always prepared for. So that's, yeah, I think that's the main thing I would, I would add. Um, but remember, you know, if you're a researcher and you've got good data, you know, you have a responsibility and you're going to be okay. So be more, try to be positive about it, but it can be hard. Um, in terms of next steps, I'm not, I'm not sure um, exactly where I'm going next with this, with this research. I'm not sure if I'm finished with AMR. I, I'm, I'm never finished with AMR. I mean, I think that even if it's not the, the key focus of my research, I think it's always something that's going to come up in the future. And I think that maybe it's something that I'll weave in and out of a bit. Mm-hmm. Nice. And anything else you would like to tell our audience before we close off? No, nothing else. Um, but thanks for having me. It was really fun. Yeah, it was great to be, to have you and great to get to know you. And I really wish you luck on your future endeavors, either with AMR or touching AMR or something else. I'll be keeping an eye and see what, what's coming up. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you. Bye. Welcome back. Um, so Jenny, what are your thoughts on this interview that I know you actually quite enjoy listening to it? 
Yeah, I thought this was a really fun interview to listen to uh, for several reasons, but it was really nice to hear you guys talking about Dr. Irwin's perspective on these things and especially kind of how she got into AMR. I found really interesting and she's a very comfortable speaker, which of course helps. And there were a few things that kind of hit me a little anecdotally about things that we've talked about recently. I know um, you and I recently were listening to the Swedish Forum for Research Communication an mm-hmm. online uh, one-day conference where we had, among other people, the Swedish Public Health Agency's communicator and the Crisis Bureau, I think it's called, communicator. And we are talking about the difficulty in messaging in the COVID pandemic, and they were talking about how they kind of wanted to be vague in some things to like allow for flexibility. And then it was very funny then, because immediately afterwards, there was a behavioral specialist who gave a very nice talk, talking about how that is absolutely not how you get people to change their behavior. You need to have clear messaging. And this definitely came back to me when you guys were talking about, as you mentioning in Swedish popular media, especially how there was this messaging that was kind of made to be simple and concrete about like, this is what you as an individual can do. Maybe like, don't ask for antibiotics, don't all this kind of stuff. That wasn't very nuanced and that we're kind of missing a lot. It doesn't really cover the problem. And I was kind of laughing at myself at like, this is something we joked about, like you have to be clear messaging, but it's so hard with these really difficult multifaceted issues. Whereas you guys talk about, you know, how do you get to the bigger players? Mm -hmm. We could talk about like as an individual, what you can do, it's not that much, but you can try to push the bigger players, which kind of led me into another thought that I don't really think is that viable either. But I was thinking about why is there not a comparative organization like Greenpeace or something else as there is for climate change in human health and especially in antibiotic resistance. And it is kind of because it's a bit too complicated. It's it's very hard. It's very human health has a lot of different levels and aspects. AMR by itself kind of is too wide overreaching. It's hard to get activists, especially for AMR, to get active. But it would be nice to have an organization like that that could kind of collect public opinion and push, basically give an incentive for these bigger actors to change the way they do things, like maybe change how pharmaceutical companies put some pressure on how pharmaceutical companies handle the release of antibiotics into the environment from their manufacturing, or maybe how food producers manage antibiotic use at animals. I mean, there's a little bit of that, but it's not so organized. Mm -hmm. While in climate change, we do see a little bit more organized, like public activism, I'd say. Yeah, and as uh, we were mentioning, and in particular Rachel was bringing up, uh, there are many other themes around that could also help the antimicrobial resistance issue. So more push for big companies with a lot of money to help out bringing sanitation, running water, and other aspects to places that they really needed to have a healthy uh, environment as well for human health. I think that's actually something that could be feasible in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I like that you brought that up. Uh, one thing that I particularly enjoyed uh, of uh, Rachel's talk is how it all came to be. You know, yeah. the, the fact that, that they had these academic jam sessions. I love that she presented it like that, where people from various faculties come and talk together about an issue and then try to just like brainstorm and see what are the possibilities. And that's how even though she was focused on trying to get a topic in something related but different than her interesting narratives and the visualizations, she's like, okay, why not explore this in the context of global health? And I think she's extremely brave for like just pushing out of her comfort zone and with her background, bringing to new topic of AMR and the new topic of visualizations and trying to make sense of it and propose something that I find interesting but also enlightening and I think she also brings up some of the drawbacks of this situation of how we talk about antimicrobial resistance and I think it's really nice in her article we all know how we talk about AMR we are we are exposed to it all the time especially the people like us and the people that are listening to us probably a lot of them we know how we talk about it we know that we are always focusing on a lot of fear metaphors and Uh, a lot of potential horrible futures but I think it's very nice that she just like put all this into context and it gives you an example that look this is how we're doing it it's repetitive we're always dwelling on the same things and this is maybe not the best thing to do and maybe we'll have bad consequences like limiting us thinking about how we can solve it so 
it was really great to talk to her and to get to know this uh, from from her own voice. Yeah, absolutely. It was a very, like you said, brave, especially as the word I'd use. Like, it's easy when you kind of become academically specialized into something very narrow to just stick in your zone and not do much else and not step out of it. But it was nice to hear about the jump session that actually led to something concrete and very good work, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I don't think a lot of people, maybe outside of academia, understand how difficult that would be to do. I mean, I would be have a very hard time to do something like that. Mm -hmm. This interview also reminds me a little bit to one of our first interviews that we did on episode three with Dr. Anneke M. Lee from Norway, where we looked into her research and she brought to us her work on looking into how antibiotics future past have kind of shape the history of antibiotics and antibiotic research. And I think this is kind of like the next thing, which is like, let's analyze now how our narratives today are shaping our futures about antibiotics and how this could be limiting. So it's it's a nice uh, coming back to a similar topic, but put from a different perspective. And if yes. you guys haven't listened to that interview, I really recommend that's one of our most popular episodes, episode three. Uh, we will leave the link in the, the show notes below. There was another thing that I thought of when you guys were talking and kind of came up at the end, this um, the emotionally taxing work sometimes they do in uh, academia. And this is really relevant, I think, for people that work in the lab with antibiotic resistance, because the way we sometimes talk about things is a little bit twisted. Like we see, okay, I think I discovered this new mechanism of antibiotic resistance. Oh, it's really cool. This is really amazing from, because for us, it's really interesting. But then if you think about like what this means, I mean, I keep trying to tell myself like it's not, we're not creating anything. We're finding things that already exist, but you lose the weight of what this means. It means that people are being treated with antibiotics and it's not working. And maybe you're finding out why, but it's still a piece of a very negative puzzle. And I was thinking back about some of the personal experiences I've had where I realized something in the lab that like this might be why uh, resistance is occurring to this antibiotic in a lot of cases. It's a little bit hard to trace. And I was looking back at basically like patient outcome stories in publications and found some cases where it made sense that what we saw in the lab could have been what happened in this patient. I mean, there's no evidence that it is, but it could be. And oftentimes this was some patients that died and it kind of hit me a little bit as, okay, this is more serious than I remember on a day-to-day -day basis that it is. And especially when I found the one isolate that I work a lot with, uh, that I kind of joked, like, it's my isolate. I, it's very interesting. It's really cool. I started looking back at it when I was writing my halftime to try to just basically find a link. And I realized that this was a, a strain that killed a six-year-old. And that's basically why it was being studied. And It kind of brings you down, but it's it, it's important to have this grounding of like, okay, why do we, why does this matter? Why am I doing this? Uh, but it is a little bit depressing. And then I catch myself trying to, when I'm talking about things with colleagues in the lab, not say, oh, there's this new antibiotic resistance gene I was reading about. It's really cool. No, it's it's very interesting and important to study. Mm -hmm. It's not not used positive phrasing around it because of, of the severity. Yeah, what it means uh, to people. Even though nobody in the room is affected by it immediately, it no, still feels important to keep in mind. But the way we talk about things does matter, right? And yeah. I guess the way we talk about things is our only way really to pay respect, apart from the fact that we are studying these things that are hugely problematic and mm -hmm. have really sad and bad outcomes for a lot of people. So I do think that is important that we pay attention and we are mindful of these particular things. So... Yeah, it is not always a happy place to be, but it's important no, for sure. But it's it does make, at the same time as it's kind of depressing, it also makes me feel like it's worthwhile, worth mm -hmm. doing. I mean, it's easy in our field to feel like it's worth doing, but it's a more emotional reminder, which uh, can help some days when it's frustrating as well. Yes. Yeah, so on and all, I am very uh, happy that we got to talk to her and have her in the podcast and of course if you missed the talk by Rachel Irwin at the seminar series of USC you can head out to our YouTube channel and watch it there so don't miss it and with that let's go to the news 
Welcome to the new section of this May episode and today we're bringing you an update on a report and also one piece of original research that has been published very recently. Jenny, can you introduce to us the report that we're talking about today? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the report from the WHO is called the 2020 Antibacterial Agents in Clinical and Preclinical Development and Overview and Analysis. So this is basically a kind of annual report that the WHO releases that talks about how does the pipeline look, what's coming out, what they also might talk about things that have recently been approved and kind of tie in, you know, how are things looking when it comes to antibiotics and antibacterials right now. They uh, look at the clinical antibacterial pipeline. They find 43 traditional products. So basically like the kind of thing you think of when you think of an antibiotic, a medication, a something that targets bacteria directly. They also now look at the non-traditional types of antibiotics. So then we're talking about things like antibodies or bacteriophages or that sort of thing. And there's 27 non-traditional in the clinical pipeline. They also actually looked at the preclinical antibacterial pipeline, which has a lot of agents in it. But it's it's very interesting to see this sort of analysis. And it's kind of gives you an optimistic view to see that there's a lot of stuff out there. But a lot of these things, just to keep in mind, aren't going to end up mm-hmm. becoming antibiotics. Yeah. Um, they mentioned, for example, the other things in phase one, Right now, I think there were 10 antibiotics in phase one that are relatively new, novel. They expect that one, based on previous rates of how, how successful these are, one might be approved in 10 years, uh, just to give you an idea of what these numbers mean. In general, there were some weaknesses in the pipeline, a lot of weaknesses. It's not a lot of things that are new classes of antibiotics, mm-hmm. very few new classes of antibiotics. Things were mainly new updates of older antibiotic classes, which can be useful, but they also mentioned that there, it, this is a bit hard to find the value of these antibiotics. It's hard to maybe, they maybe aren't used much in clinics. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that they're, they shouldn't be made, but it's this kind of thing. It, it's not going to solve the problem. This is not how we solve the problem. Yeah, about 82% of the things that have made it into the market are basically variations of other new antibiotics that came out to the market in the 80s, which has a potential risk for a rapid development of new resistance to them as well. So that's a bit of an issue. Yeah. And they also mentioned uh, 26 of the traditional things in the clinical antibacterial pipeline are against the WHO priority pathogens, which is nice. There are some things in the pipeline that are really targeting some of these uh, difficult-to-reach pathogens. And there are things targeting tuberculosis and C. diff as well. Mm-hmm. But they do also point out there are specifically two bacteria, Acinetobacter baumani and uh, Pseudomonas, are not really, there's not a lot to target resistant clones of those, uh, which is a really big problem. So it's not all doom and gloom, I guess, is mm-hmm. maybe some of the... No, it's it's very good that they do this very comprehensive look into the pipeline. And if you guys go and take a look at the report, which is free, available, and the link yeah. is below you can really see a comprehensive lookout at all of these different compounds. And as they say, there's a lot, kind of, like if you think in absolute numbers, you know, like 200, 300 compounds that are in the preclinical stages. And, yeah. But this is kind of like a numbers game. And the situation around the challenges that had to do with the economical and the scientific issues are still there, which means that a lot of these compounds that are pumped into the pipeline will realistically not really make it. Yeah. anywhere that are going to be useful. But it's important that we don't have a stagnant and a dry pipeline and the things are coming yeah. in. And we just kind of need to put effort into solving those side challenges, which are basically just economical. And when it comes to scientific, it's actually money because the scientific challenges, if you have enough money pumped into it and enough human resources, which is scientists looking into this, trying to find new things, trying to come up with new technologies and innovative solutions, you are going to solve those problems. And they mentioned, uh, I mean, it's really nice analysis of the the non-traditional things mm-hmm. as well here, but they also mentioned, you know, there's a lot of difficulties here. A lot of these are very um, species specific. They're very narrow spectrum, which is great in some ways, but it also requires a diagnostic level that might not be, you know, feasible in most mm-hmm. of the world. They talk about how there's going to be regulation issues with a lot of these things. Like the, our regulatory agencies just aren't set up to evaluate or approve these things. A lot of them are not meant to be given to the patients alone as a treatment. They're kind of supposed to like assist 
they're supposed to help treat patients that are being treated with antibiotics as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're not supposed to be given to patients alone. And that's very hard to also evaluate, like, how good is this? Is it working? Is it mm -hmm. actually an improvement? All of that is really hard to manage and get data on, hard, mm -hmm. solid data, which is exactly what these regulatory agencies want. Uh, so there's some challenges there, but they do mention that, like, that there's a lot of innovation there. There's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of new things, which we can't ignore either because mm -hmm. the old way maybe isn't enough. You know, we have to be brave and take steps and try new things. So um, positives and downsides. Yes. And another um, unique thing of this new report is that they also for first time assess the clinical utility of those antibiotics that are in phase three. So when you look through yeah. the report for each one of these compounds that are in phase three, which means that are very close to actually being put out to the market, they are assessing how useful is this compound going to be when put into the clinic. So what is the clinical yeah. utility? So this is also an important update. And it's nice because they kind of bring in a more global view of the use and not just um, a lot of these antibiotics might only be approved in uh, high income countries. Uh, but ideally, we need them to be in all parts of the world. And they mentioned that, you know, there, there are issues of some of these treatments in mm -hmm. low income countries. And talking about low and middle income countries, the second study that we're going to talk about today looks into something that has to do a lot with what we just mentioned, which is a lot of the burden of uh, multidrug resistant bacteria in low and middle-income countries happens at the neonatal level. So there is a lot of neonatal uh, mortality due to multi-resistant infections. And just this month, there has been an article published trying to really deepen the understanding and the knowledge of the bacteria that are causing this mortality. This uh, article was published on 29th of March, but available on the April issue of Nature Microbiology. And it has the title of Characterization of Antimicrobial Resistance Gram-Negative Bacteria That Cause Neonatal Sepsis in Seven Low- and Middle-Income Countries. This study is led by the group of Tim Walsh in Cardiff University, but is a result of the newly created Barnard's Network, which started in 2015. Barnard's Network is a network for understanding the burden of antibiotic resistance in neonates from developing societies and focuses on getting to know the causes and the burden of this problem in low and middle income countries. This study is actually the first ever attempt to put together clinical and molecular epidemiology data from low and middle income countries with respect to gram-negative neonatal infections, which is the highest burden of neonatal uh, deaths in these countries. Just to put it into perspective, 99% of all the neonatal deaths that happen in the world happen in low and middle income countries. And the majority of the studies that have happened to date to understand neonatal mortality were from developing countries. So we didn't have really very good data into what are the characteristics of the bacteria that are creating these infections in these low and middle income countries, even though we do know that the burden is high and we know that there are a lot of babies getting sick right after birth in the hospitals. So this network kind of aims at really putting all the data they can gather of these isolate together and give out information that can guide further research and further recommendations on to what kind of treatments should be used in these cases and in these particular contexts. Um, in this article that we're talking about today, uh, they look at seven low and middle income countries. So from the total amount of uh, isolates that they got from the babies, they focus on understanding the gram-negative infections in this study. And of those, what they found is the majority of the infections were caused by Klebsiella pneumonia, followed by Serratia marsens and Klebsiella michiganensis. And also some cases were caused by Escherichia coli or Enterobacter cloacae. For each one of these isolates, they did whole genome sequencing, antimicrobial susceptibility, and pull all the clinical data that they could gather from those cases, and just have a comprehensive description of what's happening with those bacterial species and bacterial lineages. The main results were that of the Enterobacteriales, which is Klebsiella species, E. coli species, the majority of the isolates were resistant to multiple cephalosporins and carbapenem antibiotics, and that all isolates that they studied were resistant to more than one antibiotic, which is quite scary. 
Another interesting result of this study was that for specific species, they found multiple lineages that were causing these resistant infections. And this means that there is a dynamic situation of how these bacteria become resistant and how they are spread in between either the babies, it could be in their flora or from the mothers as well, and also within the hospital because we know that nosocomial infections are a huge cause of these neonatal infections as well. Mm. Another really important thing that they found in this study is that the majority of the isolates that they studied were resistant to the two first lines of empirical treatment that is recommended by the WHO in the case of neonatal sepsis, which means that the majority of these babies infected with these bacteria were not going to get cured if they were treated with this first two line of uh, treatment recommendation. Empirical treatment for sepsis is incredibly important because it's a time-sensitive issue. The longer you take to treat a patient that has sepsis, the higher the chance that that patient is going to die. So having a proper empirical treatment or having proper and fast diagnostics that can tell you what the patient has is extremely important. And in the settings of low and income countries, there is a huge need for diagnostics and rapid diagnostics in general. Not only there, but in general, we do not have very rapid diagnostics for sepsis cases. Having an understanding of what the possibilities of these infections are from the get-go is very important to have the proper treatment recommendation. Because if you are knowing that the majority of the infections that are happening to babies are with species that are already resistant to this first two line of treatment, Mm -hmm. those first two line of treatment should not be the recommended empirical treatment I mean, I think specifically it was 60% of the isolates they found were resistant to the specific antibiotics that are given as first line, which means that six out of 10 cases, the baby's not going to be treated. They have to take something else. And it's it's a question of, like you said, should this be the first line treatment? Mm -hmm. If this is the case, in in this study, they did, it was not at all focused on patients that developed resistance. They enrolled 36,000 neonates and just looked at the ones that happened to get sepsis. So there's not really a kind of bias here in that situation. And 60% were resistant to the first-line treatment. And aside from this, like, these really important findings regarding the resistance and, like, I mean, that there's so much carpenem resistance also was kind of blew my mind. It's also really important in the study to bring out. They, they found a lot of diversity in the study. They found a lot of new, they have a much better understanding of what kind of isolates cause these infections. So there's a lot of different, you know, species identifications they found within these species, new subtypes, ST types, as we call them in microbiology uh, that we didn't know about before. They found they identified several new ones in different species, not all the different species, but some of them. And also just in general, uh, the bacteria that are causing infections in these low and middle income countries, it doesn't seem to be the same kind of bacteria that are causing these sepsis infections in high income countries. So this is really important, especially if we're doing empirical treatment. The studies done in high income countries might not be so applicable to the low income countries. And it's really important that they also get information about what, what's causing the infections in these children, in these babies, and how that can help with treatment. So I thought that was also, I mean, it's not so much about the resistance issue, but it's a very important microbiological aspect of this and really bringing in how you treat the patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the work of this network is extremely important in order to guide future research and also treatment recommendations as well. Yeah, we need absolutely. to know the data, as we always say, in epidemiology and surveillance is really important. And if you put together classical epidemiology with more molecular methods where you get much more information about these isolates, all the better. And this study is also an open, there, this publication is also an open access, so I strongly recommend people read it. it there's a lot more information in there if you want to see it. It's yeah, very, there's beautiful graphs and yeah, it, there's a lot of stuff in there, but uh, I think it's definitely worth reading. Yeah, I think uh, overall it's a really good study. And I read that the Barnard's network is going to also look into other things, like, for example, colonization of gut microbiota in children and the transmission of nosocomial pathogens within the hospitals and trying to really get an understanding of what is the burden of this antibiotic resistant isolates neonates in these developing societies. Yeah. And it sounded like they're also going to do a similar study to this one, but regarding the gram positives, this mm-hmm. this uh, gram positives caused at least as many 
uh, sepsis cases as the gram negatives. So it's uh, equally important. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially there, I think they found that it was not the same. There was a lot of staphylococcus, which usually it's streptococcus in high income countries. Yeah. Uh, so it's a lot uh, of uh, findings, I would say. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it's an equally important study there. So we keep an eye on it. All right, then with that, we are done for this month of May. And we urge you to keep an eye on what's coming up for the coming months because we have a very nice pipeline of interviews and people that we're going to bring to the podcast. I don't want to say anything yet, but I think it's going to be a great end of the spring season and summer season as well here at the podcast. So I'm super excited for what's coming up. All right. Have a nice month. See you all soon. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. <laughs>